Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book nine, chapter eight. This is the first time we're getting a look into Andre's thoughts following the fallout with Natasha and Kuragin. What do you think of Andre's initial response to the situation and how do you feel about his thought process and changing response throughout the chapter? We also get to see a little more into the old prince's psyche in this chapter. How does this build on the character? Are you more empathetic toward him now? Near the end of the chapter, Maya tells Andre, remember, sorrows come from God and men are never to blame. What do you make of this statement and Maya at this point? Waiting for Leah says, I really can't put myself in their shoes, maybe because those were different times, but I can't imagine a life where my father, the old prince, is really mean and demanding, but I still respect him and stay by his side. I guess people are, yeah, I can imagine that. Um, not because of any personal thing, but people uh, will, will strangely defend their parents uh, to very unreasonable lengths. You know? But I do see your point. Seems like our tolerance for kind of abuse in our day and age is far, far lower. Um, four lost souls in a bowl said, regarding the third question, no, that's absurd. Um, what's absurd? Wait, the third question. Maya tells Andre, remember, sorrows come from God and men are never to blame. That's absurd. As far as I'm aware, has no biblical basis. It's somewhat similar to the Catholic belief that bad things happen because you have sinned, in that both argue that God has decreed that something bad should happen, but Maya's theology seems much more in line with the gods of antiquity, that God just has just decided to send sorrows your way in the form of others wronging you almost as a whim, that no man can be at fault for any misdeed because God is the one who delivered this sorrow to your doorstep. Yeah, I think it's dumb too. I don't think that makes any sense. I think if someone does something cruel and awful to you, then that person is to blame for that cruel and awful thing having been done to you. Uh, yeah, but then again, I don't really believe in God to begin with, so, you know, I'm not going to attribute it to him. Uh, by the way, I did my hospital thing today. All good. I'm just literally, as I was talking, I was pulling band-aids off my arms from where they put all the little stabbies, stabby stabs into me. I only learned today, 36, wait, how old am I? 36? 35. I'm 35. <laughs> and I only learnt today, at 35, that when, you know when you are in a hospital and they put like a drip in you or like the little needle goes into your hand and then they have that little attachment and that just sits there and then when they need to put something in, they just put it on the attachment. You know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know what that's called, but you know, they don't reinsert a needle every time you need a different thing. They just use that one that's already stuck and kind of taped down. I don't know what that's called, but for my whole life, I thought that what they did was they put a little needle into a vein, just like how they do an injection, and then it has a little connector at the end, and that connector hangs out, and the needle sits in the vein, and then they just tape it there like that. And that was how I imagined it my whole life. And so whenever I'm watching a movie where people are like pulling those things out, 
or like even when they've just got them in and they're moving around in the bed and stuff I'm like wait isn't that like stabbing a needle around inside a vein every time you move your arm there's a needle in your arm <laughs> and um so they put them in me today and then they asked me to put something in my bag they're like oh do you want to chuck that in your bag here you go and they put you know my bag on my lap and then I was like reaching up to put something in the bag and I was like oh am I can I move my arms is that okay and they're like yeah I'm like oh okay and I kind of looked you know at the things in my arms as if to suggest that was what was worrying me and they're like oh those are just um plastic tubes that go into the vein I'm like ah oh. and like yeah yes yeah. so it's not a needle in it's the needle threads a plastic tube into the vein that's you know pliable bendable and then the needle comes out and the tube stays in so there's not actually you know anything sharp in your body wow i learned that today and now that i know that i'm like oh of course <laughs> like that's so obvious and probably everyone just knew that instinctually and it's one of those things where i'm like immediately i was like i learned that way too late i learned that like 30 years too late <laughs> i learned that 30 years later than most people learn that so uh there you go that's what i learned today um oh my god when i because they put me under you know they put you to to sleep for the um procedure when i woke up i felt so good <laughs> it was like the best sleep I've ever had. My God. Uh, anyway, that was my day. Uh, let's read. Chapter 9, shall we? Prince Andre reached the general headquarters of the army at the end of June. <clears throat> the first army with which was the emperor occupied the fortified camp of Drissa. The second army was retreating, trying to effect a junction with the first one, from which it was said to be cut off by large French forces. Everyone was dissatisfied with the general course of affairs in the Russian army, but no one anticipated any danger of invasion of the Russian provinces, and no one thought the war would extend further than the western, the Polish provinces. Prince Andre found Barclay de Tolly, who, to whom he had been assigned, on the bank of Drissa, as there was not a single town or large village in the vicinity of the camp, the immense number of generals and courtiers accompanying the army were living in the best houses of the villages on both sides of the river. Over a radius of six miles, Barclay de Tolly was quartered nearly three miles from the emperor. He received Bolkonsky stiffly and coldly and told him in his foreign accent that he would mention him to the emperor for a decision as to his employment but asked him, meanwhile, to remain on his staff. Anatole Kuragin, whom Prince Andre had hoped to find with the army, was not there. He had gone to Petersburg, but Prince Andre was glad to hear this. His mind was occupied by the interests of the centre that was conducting a gigantic war, and he was glad to be free for a while from that distraction caused by the thought of Kuragin. During the first four days, while no duties were required of him, Prince Andre rode around the whole fortified camp and, by the aid of his own knowledge and by talks with experts, tried to form a definite opinion about it. But the question of whether the camp was advantageous or disadvantageous remained for him undecided. Already for, from his military experience 
and what he had seen in camp, sorry, had seen in the Austrian campaign, <clears throat> he had come to the conclusion that in war the most deeply considered plans have no significance and that all depends on the way unexpected, unexpected movements of the enemy that cannot be foreseen are met and on how and by whom the whole matter is handled. To clear up this last point for himself, Prince Andre, utilizing his position and acquaintances, tried to fathom the character of the control of the army and of the men and parties engaged in it, and he deduced for himself the following of the state of affairs. While the emperor had still been at Vilna, the forces had been divided into three armies. First, the army under Barclay de Tolly, secondly, the army under Bagration, and thirdly, the one commanded by Tormasov. The emperor was with the first army, but not as commander-in-chief. In the orders issued, it was stated not that the com- not that the emperor would take command, but only that he would be with the army. The emperor, moreover, had with him not a commander-in-chief's staff, but the imperial headquarters staff. In attendance on him was the head of the imperial staff, quartermaster general Prince Volkonsky, as well as generals, imperial aides-de-camp, diplomatic officials, and a large number of foreigners, but not the army staff. Besides these, there were in attendance on the Emperor without any definite appointments, Arak Chief, the ex-Minister of War, Count Benningsen, the Senior General in rank, the Grand Duke Tsarvich, Constantine Pavlovich, Count Rumanstev, the Chancellor, Stein, a former Prussian Minister, Armfeldt, a Swedish General, Fuel, the Chief Author of the Plan of Campaign, Pellucci, an Adjutant General, and Sardinian, Emigre, Wolzogen, and many others. Though these men had no military appointment in the army, their position gave them influence, and often a corps commander, or even the commander-in-chief, did not know in what capacity he was questioned by Benningsen, the Grand Duke, Archiev, or Prince Volkonsky, or was given this or that advice, and did not know whether a certain order received in the form of advice emanated from the man who gave it or from the emperor, and whether it had been had to be executed or not. But this was only the external condition, the essential significance of the presence of the emperor and of all these people from a courtier's point of view, and in the emperor's vicinity, all became courtiers, was clear to everyone. It was this, the emperor did not assume the title of commander-in-chief, but disposed all of all the armies, the men around him, were his assistants. Arak chief was a faithful custodian, to enforce order and acted as the sovereign's bodyguard. Benningsen was a landlord in the Vilna province who appeared to be doing the honours of the district but was in reality a good general, useful as an advisor and ready to hand to replace Barclay. The Grand Duke was there because it suited him to be. The ex-minister Stein was there because his advice was useful and the Emperor Alexander held him in high esteem personally. Armfelt virulently hated Napoleon and was a general full of self-confidence quality that always influenced Alexander. Paulucci was there because he was bold and decided in speech. The adjutants general were there because they always accompanied the emperor. And lastly, and chiefly, Fuel was there because he had drawn up the plan of campaign against Napoleon and, having induced Alexander to believe in the efficacy of that plan, was directing the whole business of the war. With Fuel was Wolzlogen, and who expressed Fuel's thoughts in a more comprehensible way than Fuel himself, who was a harsh bookish theorist, self-confident to the point of despising everyone else, was able to do. 
Besides these Russians and foreigners who propounded new and unexpected ideas every day, especially the foreigners who did so with a boldness characteristic of people employed in a country not their own, there were many secondary personages accompanying the army because their principles were there. Among the opinions and voices in this immense, restless, brilliant and proud sphere, Prince Andre noticed the following sharply defined subdivisions of tendencies and parties. The first party consisted of Fuel and his adherents, military theorists who believed in a science of war with immutable laws, laws of oblique movements, outflanking and so forth. Fuel and his adherents demanded a retirement into the depths of the country in accordance with precise laws defined by a pseudo-theory of war. And they saw only barbarism, ignorance, or evil intention in every deviation from that theory. To this party belonged the foreign nobles Walsagen, Winsogerod, and others, chiefly Germans. The second party was directly opposed to the first. One extreme, as always happens, was met by representatives of the other. The members of this party were those who had demanded on advance from Vilna into Poland and freedom from the from all prearranged plans. Besides being advocates of bold action, this section also represented nationalism, which made them still more one-sided in the dispute. They were Russians, Bagration, Ermolov, who was beginning to come to the front, and others. At that time, a famous joke of Ermolov's was being circulated that as a great favour he had petitioned the emperor to make him a German. The men of that party, remembering Suvorov, said that what one had to do was not to reason or stick pins into maps, but to fight, beat the enemy, keep him out of Russia, and not let the army get discouraged. To the third party, in which the emperor had most confidence, belonged the courtiers who tried to arrange compromises between the other two. The members of this party, chiefly civilians, and to whom Arak chief belonged, thought and said what men who have no convictions but wish to seem to have some generally say. They said that undoubtedly war, particularly against such a genius as Bonaparte, they called him Bonaparte now, needs most deeply devised plans and profound scientific knowledge, and in that respect fuel was a genius, but at the same time it had to be acknowledged that the theorists are often one-sided, and therefore one should not trust them absolutely, but should also listen to what fuel's opponents and practical men of experience in warfare had to say, and then choose a middle course. They insisted on the retention of the camp at Drissa according to Fuel's plan, but on changing the movements of the other armies. Though by this course neither one aim nor the other could be attained, yet it seemed best to the adherents of this third party. Of a fourth, of a fourth option, sorry, of a fourth opinion, the most conspicuous representative was the Savage, who could not forget his disillusionment at Austerlitz, where he had ridden out at the head of the guards in his cusk and cavalry uniform as to a review expecting to crush the French gallantry but unexpectedly finding himself in the front line and had narrowly escaped amid the general confusion. The men of this party had both the quality and the defect of frankness in their opinions. They feared Napoleon, recognized his strength and their own weakness and frankly said so. They said nothing but sorrow, shame and ruin would come of all this. We have abandoned Vilna and Vitbisk, and shall abandon Drissa. The only reasonable thing left to do is to conclude peace as soon as possible before we are turned out of Petersburg. 
This view was very general in the upper army circles and found support also in Petersburg and from the Chancellor, Rumyantsev, who, for other reasons of state, was in favour of peace. The fifth party consisted of those who were adherents of Barclay de Tolly, not so much as a man, but as a minister of war and commander-in-chief. Be he what he may, they always began like that, he is an honest, practical man, and we have nobody better. Give him real power, for war cannot be conducted successfully without unity of command, and he will show what he can do, as he did in Finland. If our army is well organized and strong, and has withdrawn to Drissa without suffering any defeats, we owe this entirely to Barclay. If Barclay is now to be superseded by Benningsen, all will be lost, for Benningsen showed his incapacity already in 1807. The sixth party, the Benningsenites, said on the contrary that at any rate there was no one more active and experienced than Benningsen, and twist about as you may, you will have to come to Benningsen eventually, let the others make mistakes now, said they, arguing that our retirement to Drissa was a most shameful reverse and an unbroken series of blunders. The more mistakes that are made, the better. It will, will at any rate be understood all the sooner that things cannot go on like this. What is wanted is not some Barclay or other, but a man like Benningsen, who made his mark in 1807 and whom Napoleon himself did justice. A man whose authority would be willingly recognised and Benningsen is the only such man. The seventh party considered, consisted of the sort of people who are always to be found, especially around young sovereigns, and of whom there were particularly many around Alexander. Generals and imperial aides-de-camp passionately devoted to the emperor, not merely as a monarch but as a man, adoring him sincerely and disinterestedly as Rostov had done in 1805, and who saw him not only all the virtues, saw in him not only all the virtues, but all human capabilities as well. These men, though enchanted with the sovereign for refusing the command of the army, yet blamed him for such excessive modesty, and only desired and insisted that their adored sovereign should abandon his diffidence and openly announce that he would place himself at the head of the army, gather round him a commander-in-chief's staff, and, consulting experienced theoreticians, and practical men, where necessary, would himself lead the troops whose spirits would thereby be raised to the highest pitch. The eighth and largest group, which in its enormous numbers was to the others as ninety-nine to one, consisted of men who desired neither peace nor war, neither an advance nor a defensive camp at the Drissa or anywhere else. Neither Barclay nor the Emperor, neither Fuel nor Benningsen, but only the one most essential thing, as much advantage and pleasure for themselves as possible. In the troubled waters of conflicting and intersecting intrigues that eddied about the Emperor's headquarters, it was possible to succeed in many ways and thinkable, unthinkable at other times. A man who simply wished to retain his lucrative post would today agree with Fuel, tomorrow with his opponent, and the other day the day after, sorry, nearly to avoid responsibility or to please the Emperor, would declare that he had no opinion at all on the matter. Another who wished to gain some advantage would attract the Emperor's attention by loudly advocating the very thing the Emperor had hinted at the day before, and would dispute and shout at the Council, beating his breast and challenging those who did not agree with him to duels, 
thereby proving that he was prepared to sacrifice himself for the common good. A third, in the absence of opponents between two councils, would simply solicit a special gratuity for his faithful services, well knowing that at that moment people would be too busy to refuse him. A fourth, while seemingly overwhelmed with work, would often come accidentally under the emperor's eye. A fifth, to achieve his long-cherished aim of dining with the emperor, would stubbornly insist on the correctness or falsity of some newly emerging opinion, and for this object would produce arguments more or less forcible and correct. All the men of this party were fishing for rubles, decorations and promotions, and in this pursuit watched only the weathercock of imperial favour, and directly they noticed it turning in any direction, this whole drone population of the army began blowing hard that way, so that it was all the harder for the emperor to turn it elsewhere. Amid the uncertainties of the position, with the menace of serious danger giving a peculiarly threatening character to everything, amid this vortex of intrigue, egotism, conflict of views and feelings, and the diversity of race among these people, this eighth and largest party of those preoccupied with personal interests imparted great confusion and obscurity for the common task. Whatever question arose, a swarm of those drones, without having finished their buzzing on a previous theme, flew over to the new one and by their hum droned, drowned and obscured the voices of those who were disputing honestly. From among all these parties, just at the time Prince Andre reached the army, another, a ninth party, was being formed and was beginning to raise its voice. This was the party of the elders, responsible, reasonable men, experienced and capable in state affairs, who, without sharing any of those conflicting opinions, were able to take a detached view of what was going on at the staff at headquarters and to consider means of escape from this muddle, indecision, intricacy and weakness. The men of this party said and thought that what was wrong resulted chiefly from the emperor's presence in the army with his military court and from the consequence presence there of an indefinite conditional and unsteady fluctuation of relations which is in place at court by but harmful in an army that a sovereign should reign but not command the army, and that the only way out of the position would be for the emperor and his court to leave the army, that the mere presence of the emperor paralyzed the action of 50,000 men required to secure his personal safety, and that the worst commander-in-chief, if independent, would be better than the very best one, trammelled by the presence of authority of the monarch. Just at that time, Prince Andre was living unoccupied at Drissa, Shishkov, the secretary of State and one of the chief representatives of this party wrote a letter to the emperor with Arakchiv and Abelashev, agreed to sign. In this letter, availing himself of permission given him by the emperor to discuss the general course of affairs, he respectfully suggested on the plea that it was necessary for the sovereign to arouse a warlike spirit in the people of the capital, that the emperor should leave the army. That arousing of the people by their sovereign and his call to them to defend their country, the very incitement which was the chief cause of Russia's triumph in so far as it was produced by the Tsar's personal presence in Moscow, was suggested to the emperor and accepted by him as a pretext for quitting the army. Alright, there you go. Not not even 3% of that went into my brain. <laughs> what a slug. Oh my god. And I've read that's the second time I've read that. 
and I do not remember ever reading any of that, and now apparently I just read it for the second time. So, the Council of War is made up of all these different types, strategists, you know, etc. And they've got pros and cons. And in the end, they want the Tsar to not be part of the military. Um, there you go. I just saved you 25 minutes. <laughs> Something like that. Whatever it means, I'm sure there's a way to word that a hundred times better. Because, oh my God, that could not have been drier. All right. Anyway, hey, if you're still with me, thanks for listening. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow.